turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sunday morning we're studying a series through 1 Corinthians and titled Christian Living in a Pagan World. And um, we come now to chapter 15. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Wave and get their attention. They'll give you one. And the Bible will be marked to the passage that we're studying this morning. And we want everyone to own a Bible, to read the Bible, to know the Bible. So if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift to the, from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and uh, Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you as we always do, or most often do, Thank you for your word. We thank you that there's this place that we have on planet earth, a book that we can open up that speaks your truth and your wisdom and your heart to us. And a whole week of reading newspapers and headlines and listening and books and all kinds of different things we're always glad for the time we have each day and then on Sundays and through the week and coming together to be able to turn to your book. And we pray that you would speak to us, speak to our heart, speak to our spirit, speak to our mind, speak to our relationship with you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Through your word this morning we ask, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As a new Christian back in the 1980s, I, like many other Christians of that time, read all of the books by the Christian thinker and theologian and apologist by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer at that time, in one of his books, he made the observation that the term God had become so absorbed and redefined by the culture of the United States so as to render it essentially um, meaningless as a term for identifying the God of the Bible exclusively. That when a Christian used the term God previously, in our national history because of our biblical underpinnings, virtually everyone understood that person to be speaking about the God of the Bible. But he wrote that the culture had so changed with the infusion of Eastern religions and other 
uh, aspects of things as well, starting in the 1960s, that you could no longer be confident that when you were witnessing to a non-Christian about God, that if you use the term God, they would automatically know that you were speaking to them about the God of the Bible. And so he suggested, for clarity's sake, that we abandon as Christians, or at least further define as Christians, uh, what we mean when we use the term God. And so to take it uh, a, a little bit further in order to uh, 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 identify the God that we're speaking about, when we would mention God, we would mention the fact that we're speaking of the God of the Bible. Well, much the same thing that surrounded the use of the word God some 30 plus years ago can now really be applied also to the word or to the term Christianity. Uh, a few decades ago in our nation, when somebody would refer to themselves as a Christian, there was a, a, a pretty universal clarity on what in the world that meant and what they had done with their uh, lives. A Christian was someone who was born again, someone who had experienced a spiritual birth by virtue of putting their faith in Jesus, who had uh, been born into the world, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as a full and satisfying payment for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, uh, ascended into heaven, promised to return once again. They understood what Christianity was and what it stood for and what it meant when a person became a Christian. But in recent decades, it's become harder and harder for people to understand even what the term Christianity actually means and what it stands for, at least biblically, because there's so many different people speaking for Christianity today, and all of them claiming to be the voice of authority. And the problem is, for the onlooker, for the person who's listening to the conversation that's going on, is that very often these opinions and these voices are not, they are not complementary. What they're saying is contradictory about Christianity. And so many Christians identify themselves, so it becomes harder and harder for people to understand exactly what is a Christian. And so the word is increasingly coming to mean nothing that's really clear or specific to people. And for that reason, many Christians and I'm among them. I don't merely identify myself always as a Christian to everyone that I'm talking to. It depends on what kind of a person I'm talking to. If they understand what Christianity is, then I'll use the phrase. But very often, and more and more because of the culture and what's happened to the term, I will identify myself as a Christian who is also, uh, I, I'm a Christian, I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, or I am a disciple of Jesus, I am a follower of Jesus's. Now, why the confusion surrounding the term Christianity? It's because there are so many people who do not like some aspect of Christianity as it's defined in the Bible, and then in a 
sense of great entitlement and arrogance feel completely free to disregard how God himself has defined Christianity, and they will take then and casually redefine it as something entirely different. Examples of this abound all around us all of the time. You have what are known as liberal Christians who deny virtually everything of significance concerning Jesus. They deny his virgin birth. They deny his sinless life. They deny his incarnation. They deny his death upon the cross as being satisfactory for the forgiveness of sin. They deny his resurrection, his return, and so forth. And yet they, and I, for the life of me, I can't understand it. They deny everything about Christ and Christianity, and yet still, for some reason, want to be identified as a Christian. The liberal Christian even denies the necessity of being born again, despite the fact that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, and he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'll never forget, as a new Christian, I was uh, got going with the Lord at the Calvary Chapel in Napa, California, and we were having an outreach into the community of Napa, and some bands had come in, Christian bands, and then someone was going to present the gospel at the end of, uh, of the night. And I was, uh, it was held at the Napa High Auditorium, the old auditorium that used to be the junior college there, and it had a balcony and two um, upstairs entrances into the balcony, and I was on one of the doors, just kind of manning the door and opening it for people and all of that kind of thing. And as the bands kind of finished up and a gentleman, the pastor, got up to share the gospel, I looked out the doorway into the hallway and there was a woman, a school official that was walking up the hallway, and I recognized her as being the mother of a classmate of mine uh, when I attended Napa High School, and she came near to the door, and I invited her in so that she could hear the gospel. And so she came in, sat down, and she had to listen to the presentation of the gospel, and um, for the most part, and then she got up, and uh, she st uh, started to head towards my exit door to leave. I opened the door uh, for her, asked if she was okay, asked if she had Ever, uh, did, if she had believed in Jesus and, uh, and if she was a Christian, and she said, not like that, I'm not. And I continued the discussion with her, in, in essence, trying to be very nice, and saying, well, I don't know what you mean by not like that. You're not. That's the only way that you can become a Christian is being, by being born. I didn't laugh at her, but by being born again. And, and so I don't understand that. And then she just basically, you know, walked on her way. And it was my first exposure to that kind of thing, a redefinition of Christianity in the face of the very teaching of Jesus himself, because there are no other Christians than born-again Christians. It's how a person becomes a Christian is by experiencing a spiritual birth, by being born again. And I thought to myself, why in the world bother with pretending to be a Christian if 
I really don't want to be a Christian. Why would I even bother with it at all? It's either true or it isn't true. Why would I play some little game with it? And yet, there's a certain group of people who do. Then there's the fire insurance Christians. They are, want to be saved from judgment. Who wouldn't? And they want to be saved from the hell that their sin uh, deserves. But they don't want to give up the practice of their sins. And so they come forward at a crusade or during a church service when an invitation is given uh, to put their faith in Christ. They come forward. They pray the sinner's prayer. But in the back of their heart and their mind, they have no intention of giving up not one single sin in their life at all in order to... Uh, follow the Lord. They want a Savior, but they don't want a Lord, and so they pray the sinner's prayer, and they go on living the very same life they've always lived. And of course, it's a great self-deception. James speaks about it in his epistle. He said, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In other words, a person who puts their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins to experience a spiritual birth, that person, if, if a person makes that profession in Christ and there is never a change in their life, I'm not talking about becoming perfect, but a change of direction and a move towards sanctification and obedience to God, then that's a faith, James says, is dead. I put it this way. It is impossible for God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life. We're talking about the God who created the heavens and the earth. We're talking about the God who can Speak this into existence. It is impossible for that God to come into a human life and for that life to remain the same. It does not happen. And if that life does remain the same, it be, is because a spiritual birth has never occurred. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them. Uh, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. But this kind of so-called Christian who professes to know Christ or have put their faith in Christ, but continues to live a life deliberately of sin, this creates all kind of confusion for people concerning Christianity because they hear them call themselves Christians, but the life doesn't change for the better. And so people that aren't Christians yet, they look and they say, is it because God doesn't want to change them or God is incapable of changing them? And it creates confusion. And then you have the worldly Christian. And this is the kind of person who's typified by the third soil in Jesus's parable of the soil. And he talked about a sower going out to seed and he sowed the seed and 
Some of it fell on the rocky ground. The birds of the air came and ate the seed right up. Some of it fell into soil that was, uh, uh, well, fell on the pathway. Then it fell second on the rocky ground. And then the third seed was sown upon the soil that had uh, thorns and thistles and all of this that was there. And as the seed grew up, so did all of the thorns and the thistles and all. And then he said there was a fourth kind of soil. All of these soils representing people's hearts when they hear the gospel. A fourth seed or soil where the seed fell and it was good soil and it manifested itself as being good soil by virtue of bringing forth 30, 60, and 100 fold in terms of a crop. But of that third soil, this worldly Christian, Jesus said, now these are the ones sown among the thorns They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Here you have the kind of person who will obey Jesus' teaching on holiness and life and priorities as long as it doesn't cost them something materially or financially uh, in order to do so. But when there's a choice between God and money, uh, money always wins, and God always loses in the decision-making. You also have, this is also the kind of person who will obey Jesus' teaching as long as it doesn't deny them Uh, some pleasure or some pleasurable experience in life, some entertainment in life. But if it becomes a choice between Vegas and Jesus, Vegas always wins. If it becomes a choice between partying and Jesus, partying always wins. If it becomes a choice between HBO and Jesus, HBO always wins. And when you live in a materialistic and an entertainment-addicted culture like the one that we live in, then the problem is is that this can then begin to mark the majority of those who call themselves Christians. And then true Christianity gets even harder and harder and harder for people to see being lived out in people's lives. Then you have what's known as carnal Christianity. And the carnal Christian is the Christian who says, hey, listen, if it feels good, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And I mean, God, if it, it, God wouldn't give us these emotions. He wouldn't give us these desires if he didn't want us to be, feel equally free in uh, expressing them as well. And so they will do whatever their flesh tells them to do, even if it means disobeying or disregarding vast portions of the Word of God in order uh, to do so. So if some prohibition in God's Word gets in their way, they'll try to explain away the teaching of God's Word, or they'll simply ignore it. And carnal Christian is essentially the worship of self under the guise of Christianity. It is a man-centered Christianity. Carnal Christianity is self-dominated. It is self-directed. And God is simply in the equation. God is just merely a means to an end. And the end is for my will for my life, my pleasure, my plans, my goals, my, 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 
But God is just the genie that brings kind of a God dimension to my worship of self. He sanctifies it. Otherwise, I would just look like a selfish person. But if I'm doing this as a Christian, if I'm doing this because I've massaged the Scriptures in order to say this is what the Christian life is like, then I've sanctified a life that others would readily condemn and I would be convicted about in my own life. And so God just exists to sanctify my selfishness and my selfism. The problem is that Jesus taught, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Not deny himself something. No, 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 no. It's much deeper than that. Let him deny himself. Deny himself what? Himself, himself. Let him deny himself. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself. The big I, me, my. Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then you've got what I think of as, as the apologizing Christianity today. This is growing in its uh, base. And it's made up of those who are constantly apologizing for all the things that God has written in his word that offend, you know, all of the uh, people that want to live sin-filled and self-dominated lives. And so they're constantly wringing their hands over the fact that God is so strong in his opinions. He's so dogmatic on what's right and wrong. And he's so direct in his communication of, of his views and uh, of, his, of his opinions. And so they represent God before the world as kind of being apologetic about his opinions and his behavior as well. That, that he's, God even wishes he wasn't so much like himself. He secretly wishes that he were more like us and less like himself. That he was more enlightened like we are and more tolerant like we are. And worse than these folks are the cave-in doctrinally concerning anything in the Bible that might offend our family, friends, or culture. That's a long title, but that's, that's a growing group of Christians too. And this group goes way beyond the apologizing Christianity, which has, is, that's a Christianity and a Christian with a very serious um, inferiority complex related to the world. But the thing you've got to give them credit for is they don't tamper with God's Word. This other group here, they're the author uh, of the incredible Ronco Erasable Bible. They, they take the Bible and they say, listen, you don't have to take this seriously. Anything you don't like in the Bible, you can just erase it. You can fashion Christianity into anything you want, anything that offends you, offends your flesh, offends your sin, offends your sensitivities, your selfishness. You just erase it uh, because even false doctrine is better than no doctrine at all. And you've got all of these voices, all of these models for Christianity today, and it creates tremendous confusion until people don't even know what it stands for anymore. I'm currently reading Alistair McGrath's biography on C.S. Lewis. 
and his chapter on Lewis's conversion to Christianity is fascinating. Lewis was raised in the Christian faith and throughout his childhood and uh, throughout his youth. And he never made a commitment uh, to Jesus in his childhood or in his youth. And when he uh, grew toward adult life and headed out into the freedoms of adult life, he uh, kind of drifted and tended toward atheism. He wanted to practice certain sins. He wanted to live a certain way. He wanted to live a self-willed life. And he knew enough about God's Word to know that that was forbidden. And so the alternative to being convicted by the life that he was living was to simply uh, take on the mantle of an atheist and to take on that as a... A, 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 you know, the, the banner that he would live under. He also had the horrific experience of fighting for uh, England and the Allies during World War I in the trenches uh, in France and was exposed to uh, such death and carnage and horror that he became convinced that uh, if God was alive and God was real, that God could not allow that to happen and exist. And so his World War I experience cemented him in his uh, atheism. And then in 1930, the celebrated author Evelyn Waugh uh, dropped a bombshell on the literary world and when he announced that he had become a Catholic. And his name is well known to this day, but massively well known in that day, but well known even to this day as an author. And when he expressed the fact that he had turned to a belief in God and specifically uh, to Christianity, the news was so shocking that it made the front page of one of Britain's leading newspapers, the Daily Express. Lewis was about 32 years old at the time, and he was searching at this point in his life. Wall later ex explained in 1949 concerning his conversion that his conversion followed his realization that life was unintelligible and unendurable without God. Wow. This guy was on top of the world, the literary world in his age. And from that vantage point of being on top of the world, he came to the realization that life was unintelligible and unendurable without God. In 1927, a famous poet, T.S. Eliot, he became a Christian, uh, another Englishman, and his conversion was, again, a shock to the literary world. It became the subject of great conversation far and wide as conversion was discussed and it was debated as well. His reasons for becoming a Christian are interesting. McGrath writes this, Eliot found in Christianity a principle of order and stability located outside the human self 
which allowed him a secure vantage point from which to engage the world. Fascinating. Here you have an off-the-graph artist type. You have a right-brainer, as they would say, creative, incredibly creative. And he is well-known. He has published his most famous works by this particular time. He's experiencing the adulation of the world. And yet, in the midst of all of it, he comes face-to-face with his own creativity, and he realizes within all of that creativity that he needed the order and the stability that the God of the Bible alone could provide in order to keep him and his creativity safe. Interesting. At the same time, the English writer Graham Greene came to faith by another path while reflecting on literary issues. McGrath writes of Greene. He said, for example, Graham Greene criticized modernist writers such as Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster for creating characters who wandered like cardboard symbols through a world that was paper thin. There was, Green argued, no sense of reality in their writings. To lose sight of the religious sense, as they had so clearly done, was also to lose any sense of the importance of the human act. Great literature depends upon a passionate commitment to a real world, which for Green demanded a foundation in a deeper order of things grounded in the nature and the will of God. Fascinating. Now McGrath wrote further concerning uh, Evelyn Waugh, and who made much the same point. Without God... Uh, Evelyn Waugh wrote, Without God, an author could not give his characters reality and depth. You can, you can only leave God out by making your characters pure abstractions. Good novels rested on a plausible account for human nature, which for Waugh in turn rested on the remarkable capacity of the Christian faith to make sense of the world in general and human nature in particular. It provided a lens which brought the distorted world around him into sharp focus allowing him to understand it properly for the first time. Waugh spoke of his delight in discovering this new way of engaging reality in a letter in 1949. He wrote, Conversion is like stepping across the chimney piece out of a looking glass world where everything is an absurd caricature into the real world God made and then begins the delicious process of exploring it limitlessly. Now, in the 19th century, McGrath writes in concerning Pascal, who was a mathematician, a physicist, an inventor, also a Christian philosopher, 
And Pascal, uh, he wrote of Pascal that he thought that there was very little point in trying to persuade anyone of the truth of a religious belief. The important thing, he argued, was to make people wish that it were true. Having caught sight, they see it in somebody's life, having caught sight of the rich and satisfying vision of reality it offered, once such a desire was implanted within the human heart, the human mind would eventually catch up with its deeper intuitions. Well, all of this began to have an impact upon Lewis, and it played a part in his becoming a Christian. But here's the question. You say, what does this have to do with the passage that we're studying this morning? Here's the question. Who was minding the store of Christianity while all of these and others were on their journey to a faith in Christ or a return to the faith of their youth? Christians. Christians, and not just any Christians, but Christians who were, in the words of verse 13, watchful, standing fast in the faith, brave, strong, and loving. You see, when the whole world is going insane all around us, including some of the most brilliant people who are alive among us, somebody has to stay spiritually sane in order for them to have a Christianity and a Christian family to come home to when they finally come to their senses or regain their senses. And this world is morally and spiritually insane all around us, and we do neither them nor ourselves any good if we join them in that insanity. What we need to do is to live and to practice and to enjoy and to model, as Pascal said, a Christianity that is authentic and Christ-like. And to do so is to do so for God's sake. The God who is not willing that any should perish, and that includes you this morning. Not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But he wants, this God wants the world to see a different kind of life and to see a genuine Christianity so that he might then draw people into it. And so to live that kind of life, to enjoy Christianity as it's defined in the Scriptures, is good for God. It's good for the world that watches us. It's good for us as well. And we do it for the sake of God and our own sake and for the sake of others. Well, then again, what's required of us in order to do so? Paul says, verse 13, we're to be watchful like watchmen on the wall or like a sentry on guard duty. He's saying, stay awake. 
Stay awake to the fact that there's a very real spiritual dimension that we live in, a spiritual warfare and a battle that we are a part of so that we don't get pulled into the same spiritual and moral insanity that's all around us and is producing unbelievable amounts of casualties among people. And that we need to be ready for the attack from the devil. He's a father of lies, and to expect that attack to come against us, that's just what happens when you remain sane in an insane asylum, and when you tell people the truth about God and about life, and the devil doesn't like it, there's going to be an attack, and we have to be aware of it. But then when we are attacked, verse 13 We're to stand fast in the truth. We're to be immovable in the truth. We're to stand firm in the truth. And as Christians, we are never to retreat. We are never to yield not one inch of biblical truth in our minds or to a pagan culture, no matter what it costs us as a generation of Christians in order to do so. We do not deny the virgin birth of Jesus because it's true. We do not deny his sinless life for the simple fact that his sinless life is true. We do not deny his deity because it's true. We don't deny God's definitions of right and wrong because they are true. We are, not, we are to be immovable on the hot-button issues of our day. We do not cave on the issue of abortion. The horror of abortion, the tragedy of abortion... We live in a season in human history, if mankind ever comes to its senses again and ceases to sear its conscience, will look back on this period of my lifetime in the world as one of the darkest periods in human history, just on the basis of how we have treated the unborn for the last several decades. Abortion is insanity. There's forgiveness for it, of course, but it's insanity. And when people come to their senses, they need to come to a place that is safe and sane and holy, and that place is called the kingdom of God. We must not cave on the issue of all sexual sin, whether it's homosexual or whether it's heterosexual. All of it is wrong now, and it's always been wrong, and it will be wrong a hundred years from now. And what we're seeing today, these are not breakthroughs in terms of human enlightenment. It's not some gigantic leap in our evolutionary progress in terms of thinking. All of this stuff has been done before, and it's resulted in some of the darkest periods in human history. We must not cave in on the biblical definitions of marriage and the family unit. 
and what is going on in this country today concerning the destruction of God's institution of marriage and family, it's not sustainable. It will not go on indefinitely because it cannot go on indefinitely. It always has and it always will ultimately collapse on itself. And when man's great, grand, proud experiment in the face of God's wisdom fails, then people will once again look for a tried and true definition concerning these things. And we need to be minding the store until they do and not compromising the faith. God's truth is the only hope from mankind. Surely every one of us that is alive and awake living on planet earth today is aware that God's truth is the only hope for mankind. The world that we live in is on fire in every direction. It is destabilized politically, geopolitically, monetarily, physically, mentally, morally, spiritually, everything for the person who has eyes to see. The whole world is in flames all around us, and God's truth is the only hope for the world that we live in, and we are not to compromise it at all, but to stand fast in it. No retreat, no matter how fierce the assault against us. And he tells us that we're to be brave. And he tells us that we need to be brave because it will require bravery and courage. We must not be afraid to be firm in our convictions. And much of the moral and the spiritual chaos all around us today is occurring because people who know the truth are being bullied into silence. The people that should be speaking aren't speaking anymore, while those who promote the lies have become bold and they've become shameless. And it takes courage, it takes bravery to listen to somebody say something and say, I want to say what I'm about to say with all due respect, but I don't believe what you've just said. I used to believe that, but now I believe what you've just said to be a lie because I spent decades or years or months invested in the thing that you've just said just now. And here's where the hook came out, and this is the bondage that it brought me into, and this is the person that it made me into, a person that I hated to look at every single day. And what I found was this was at the end of that truth. As good as it looks when a person is beginning on that path, I've traveled down the path. I know what it makes a person into. But let me tell you where that path led me to. It led me to Christ, and it led me to God's perspective on that same issue. And would you mind if I tell you a little bit about what happened there in my life, and then to speak that into the situation, or to be able to say, listen, I respect your freedom to hold any opinion that you have, but I don't agree with what just got said there. The Bible says this about 
about that particular subject. And let me explain to you why it is as wise as wise can be. And then he tells us in verse 13 that we're to be strong, literally powerful, because it takes strength and it takes power to walk against the stream of immorality and false spirituality that we are forced to walk against as Christians who are living in verses 13 and 14. Never has the stream of opposition against God's truth and wisdom been stronger in my lifetime than it is right now. And it requires strength and power to not only stand against it, but to make progress in the face of it in moving forward in our relationship with the Lord. But God gives us the power to do that. God gives us the ability to grow in Christ, to be faithful to him, to be strong and to be powerful no matter what the world becomes all around us or we become like Noah where there's just but eight of us left in the whole world that have a faith in God. There's still the ability to live for God and to walk with God. And then he tells us in verse 14 that all that we do is to be done with love. That's to be the motive behind our being watchful, our standing fast in the faith, being brave, being strong. That's the motive behind doing and being those things. But it's also true that as we do those things, however they might be perceived by the world around us, at the moment that we know that as we live verses 13 and 14, we are doing and being the loving thing, the most loving thing that a person can be and do in the world in which they live in. And when the world is really crazy, then pretty soon you get pointed out as being the one that's insane because you become the small minority. In, in all of it. And so pretty soon, taking stands and being strong and being courageous and, and being watchful and standing fast in the Word of God, now it gets painted as, of course, intolerance or unloving or all these different kinds of things that get done with it. But we know in our heart of hearts that we are living this life not just out of a love for ourselves or self-preservation, but I live this life for the sake of the world around me that doesn't know Christ. Because there was a time in my life in which I didn't know the Lord and I was on my own search. And there were men and women who stayed firm in the faith and they stayed brave and they were uncompromising and they lived the life the way that God called them to live no matter what it meant to me or didn't mean to me or how I interpreted it or misinterpreted it. And when we live that kind of life, to live the life that's described here, it requires tremendous love to do that. The easiest thing in the world would be to just cave like everybody else and become politically correct like everyone else, and then we could enjoy all of the family barbecues like everybody else. And wherever else environment you want to put in life, nobody's looking for this aggravation. So why do you do it? A love for self? No. A love for God. The love for people 
people, when they don't realize that what you're doing is an expression of love, because the definitions have been so turned upon their head at a moment in time in human history. But we have the confidence, and agape love always does what is best for the other person. And what is best for the other person is not always what is easiest for the other person. For those of you who raised your children, you know you didn't always do what was easiest for them, because what was easiest for them was not always best for them. We raised them by doing what was best for them. And the same thing is true in the world in which we live. We do what's best for the world, not what's easiest for the world or our families or beyond. And we have that confidence that as we live this life, we are doing something good and loving in this world and the people that live close to us or all around the world. Well, somebody has to stay sane in the midst of the spiritual and moral chaos and insanity of our age. Someone has to mind the proverbial store so that when the world finally comes to its senses once again, there will be truth and a Christian family to come home to. And that someone is called the body of Christ. And we are debtors in this regard, even ourselves, aren't we? as others held down, as I've said, the fort, while we were getting things figured out ourselves in the Assane Asylum. And some of those people that held down the fort for us so that we would have a truth and a family of God to come to when we finally appreciated the value of it and desperately wanted to be freed from the world we created and the sin that we put ourselves in bondage to and the kingdom that makes up all of it. And some of those are mentioned in our text. The Apostle Paul, the household of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, who died and went to heaven after standing fast in the faith, not knowing that 2,000 years later we would benefit from their faithfulness. And we want to be that to others who will come to know the Lord because of our faithfulness to God. And it may be long after we are dead and gone to heaven. But somebody has to mind the store now. And God has called us to mind the store. And it's a good word to those of you who are parents of prodigals. So many things go on in your head and in your mind and in your heart. Where do we draw the lines? They break our hearts every day by the life that they live. You say, what do I do? How do I reach them? 
do I cave here? Do I comfort what? Oh. This is a great passage to parents of prodigals. Now you continue to watch. Stand fast in the faith. You be brave. You be strong. And let all that you do be done with love. You be who you are and what you are in Christ and keep growing in that. So when the day comes that they finally come to their senses, they will have a, someone to come to and a home to come to that is sane and that is safe. Do you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian? See, I don't even know what a Christian is. I've been as confused as the beginning of your sermon. I've seen so many goofball Christians all of my life. I've seen every kind. I've seen the real deal, and I've seen the circus acts. I've seen the talkers and the no-walkers, and I've seen the walkie-talkies and the non-walkie-talkies. I've seen all of it, and I don't know what in the world any of it is. It's a relationship with God that begins by putting your faith in His Son for the forgiveness of your sins so that the great obstacle to our relationship with God can be removed, which is our sin. If you sit here this morning, you're not a Christian, but you know you're looking just like these men that we've talked about earlier, the message. You're looking for the meaning and the purpose of life. You've already tried sin. You've tried a lot of sin. You found out it's pleasurable. The Bible doesn't deny that. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but only for a season. And then the hook. And then we see where the sin begins to take control of our lives. And it can be socially accepted sin. It can be money. It can be greed. It can be pride. It doesn't just have to be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And one day you wake up and you look in the mirror and you remember when you were 7 years old, when you were 13 years old, when you were 17 years old, and who you wanted to be and what you wanted to be and what you thought your life would produce in the world, and then you discover that you are a million miles away from it, and far, far away from that innocence and that beauty and those kind of ideals, and you don't like the person you live with anymore, and I'm talking about you. Or maybe you're like T.S. Eliot, looking for divine boundaries and a safe place to park your mind, your very active mind, every day so you can stay sane. Well, we've been minding the store for you, and we're glad to have done it. 
welcome home. And home is Christianity. And home is the God of the Bible who loves you and created you and sent his son to pay the price you could never pay for the forgiveness of your sins so that he, as the holy God that he is, could have the one great thing that he wants to have with you, and that is a personal relationship. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service, and they would love to pray with you and answer your questions in giving your life to the Lord today. He's the end of the search for you. This is the truth about life, the truth about you, the truth about God, the truth about eternity. You have found it. And untold millions of Christians have paid an indescribable price personally so that you might come to the truth today and so that it wasn't washed out in some chapter in human history. And this morning you'll give your life to Christ and then you will do what they did for you for the generation who will come behind you. But it all begins with faith in Christ this morning. And they would love to answer your questions and pray with you. It's that simple of putting your faith in Jesus, asking him into your life. God will come into your life today and everything changes for you. You become a new creation. Heaven becomes your eternal destination. Hope, meaning, purpose, life, joy, Everything unfolds when you take that step because it's what you've been created for. And until you are engaged in what you've been created for, there will always be that sense there must be something more to life than what I've experienced. Because until you engage in what you've been created for, then there is something still left in life that you to, to be experienced and that relationship is with God. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. Thank you so much for the indescribable, varied ways that you bring people to you. Some people conscious of their sins. Others, Lord, afraid of their minds without boundaries and needing boundaries, longing for boundaries that come from the Creator and not from man. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you can reach into our life this morning right where we are 
and show us our need for you. And we thank you this morning as a church family for the emptiness and the darkness and the bondage, Lord, that you pulled us out of when you saved us. And we thank you for the glory and the richness of the life that you have saved us into. Thank you, Father, for keeping the store while we were on that path. Thank you for keeping your children faithful and in their place so that we'd have a family to come to when we came to the end of our search. And now thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to do for others what was done for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. On Sunday night.